Chapters 19 and 20 of The Angel of Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Angel of Terror by Edgar Wallace. Chapter 19. Her maid woke Jean Briggerland at eight o'clock the next morning. Oh, miss, she said as she drew up the table for the chocolate. Have you heard about Mrs. Meredith? Jean blinked open her eyes, slipped into her dressing jacket, and sat up with a yawn. Have I heard about Mrs. Meredith? Many times, she said. But what somebody did last night, miss? Jean was wide awake now. What has happened to Mrs. Meredith? she asked. Why, miss, somebody played a practical joke on her. Her bed is sopping. Sopping? frowned the girl. Yes, miss, the woman nodded. They must have poured buckets of water over it and used up all Mrs. Cole Mortimer's peroxide, what she uses for keeping her hands nice. Jean swung out of her bed and sat looking down at her tiny white feet. Where did Mrs. Meredith sleep? Why didn't she wake us up? She slept in the dressing room, miss. I don't suppose the young lady liked making a fuss. Who did it? I don't know who did it. It's a silly kind of practical joke, and I know none of the maids would have dared, not the French ones. Jean put her feet into her slippers, exchanged her jacket for a gown, and went on a tour of inspection. Lydia was dressing in her room, and the sound of her fresh young voice as she caroled out sheer love of life came to the girl before she turned into the room. One glance at the bed was sufficient. It was still wet, and the empty peroxide bottle told its own story. Jean glanced at it thoughtfully as she crossed into the dressing room. Whatever happened last night, Lydia? Lydia turned at the voice. Oh, the bed, you mean. She made a little face. Heaven knows. It occurred to me this morning that some person, out of mistaken kindness, had started to disinfect the room. It was only this morning that I recalled the little boy who was ill and had overdone it. They've certainly overdone it, said Jean grimly. I wonder what poor Mrs. Cole Mortimer will say. You haven't the slightest idea. Not the slightest idea, said Lydia, answering the unspoken question. I'll see Mrs. Cole Mortimer and get her to change your bed. There's another room you could have, suggested Jean. She went back to her own apartment, bathed and dressed leisurely. She found her father out in the garden, reading the Nikois under the shade of a bush, for the sun was not warm, but at that hour blinding. I've changed my plans, she said without preliminary. He looked up over his glasses. I didn't know you had any, he said with heavy humor. I intended going back to London and taking you with me, she said unexpectedly. Back to London? he said incredulously. I thought you were staying on for a month. I probably shall now, she said, pulling up a basket chair and sitting by his side. Give me a cigarette. You're smoking a lot lately, he said as he handed his case to her. I know I am. 
have your nerves gone wrong she looked at him out of the corner of her eye and her lips curled it wouldn't be remarkable if i inherited a little of your yellow streak she said coolly and he growled something under his breath no my nerves are all right but a cigarette helps me think a yellow streak have i mr briggerland was annoyed and i've been out since five o'clock this morning he stopped doing what she asked curiously never mind he said with a lofty gesture thus they sat busy with their own thoughts for a quarter of an hour jean yes she said without turning her head don't you think we'd better give this up and get back to london lord stoker is pretty keen on you i'm not pretty keen on him she said decidedly he has his regimental pay and five hundred pounds a year two estates mortgaged no brains and a title what is the use of his title to me as much use as a coat of paint beside which i am essentially democratic <laughs> he chuckled and there was another silence do you think the lawyer is keen on the girl jack glover mr briggerland nodded i imagine he is said jean thoughtfully i like jack he's clever he has all the moral qualities which one admires so much in the abstract i could love jack myself could he love you bantered her father he couldn't she said shortly jack would be a happy man if he saw me stand in jim meredith's place in the old bailey no i have no illusion about jack's affections he's after lydia's money i suppose said mr briggerland stroking his bald head don't be a fool was the calm reply that kind of man doesn't worry about a girl's money i wish lydia was dead she added without malice it would make things so easy and smooth her father swallowed something you shock me sometimes jean he said a statement which amused her you're such a half-and-half -half man she said with a note of contempt in her voice you were quite willing to benefit by jim meredith's death you killed him as cold-bloodedly as you killed poor little bulford and yet you must whine and snivel whenever your deeds are put into plain language what does it matter if lydia dies now or in fifty years time she asked it would be different if she were immortal you people attach so much importance to human life the ancients and the japanese amongst the modern are the only people who have the matter in true perspective it is no more cruel to kill a human being than it is to cut the throat of a pig to provide you with bacon there's hardly a dish at your table which doesn't represent willful murder and yet you never think of it but because the man animal can talk and dresses himself or herself in queer animal and vegetable fabrics and decorates the body with bits of metal and pieces of glittering quartz you give its life a value which you deny to the cattle within your gates killing is a matter of expediency permissible if you call it war terrible if you call it murder to me it is just killing if you are caught in the act of killing they kill you and people say it is right to do so 
The sacredness of human life is a slogan invented by cowards who fear death, as you do. Don't you, Jean? he asked in a hushed voice. I fear life without money, she said quietly. I fear long days of work for a callous, leering employer and strap hanging in a crowded tube on my way home to one miserable room in the cold mutton of yesterday. I fear getting up and making my own bed and washing my own handkerchiefs and blouses and renovating last year's hats to make them look like this year's. I fear a poor husband and a procession of children and doing the housework with an incompetent maid or maybe without any at all. Those are the things I fear, Mr. Briggerland. She dusted the ash from her dress and got up. I haven't forgotten the life we lived at Ealing, she said significantly. She looked across the bay to Monte Carlo, glittering in the morning sunlight, to the green-capped head of Cap d'Elle, to Beaulieu, a jewel set in gray stone, and shook her head. It is written, she quoted somberly, and left him in the midst of the question he was asking. She strolled back to the house and joined Lydia, who was looking radiantly beautiful in a new dress of silver-gray charmeuse. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 Have you solved the mystery of the submerged bed? smiled Jean. Lydia laughed. I'm not probing too deeply into the matter, she said. Poor Mrs. Cole Mortimer was terribly upset. She would be, said Jean. It was her own eiderdown. This was the first hint Lydia had received that the house was rented furnished. They drove into Nice that morning, and Lydia, remembering Jack Glover's remarks, looked closely at the chauffeur and was startled to see a resemblance between him and the man who had driven the taxicab on the night she had been carried off from the theater. It is true that the taxi driver had a mustache and that this man was clean-shaven and, moreover, had tiny side whiskers, but there was a resemblance. Have you had your driver long? She asked as they were running through Monte Carlo along the sea road. Morden? Yes, we've had him six or seven years said Jean carelessly. He drives us when we are on the continent, you know. He speaks French perfectly and is an excellent driver. Father has tried to persuade him to come to England, but he hates London. He was telling me the other day that he hadn't been there for ten years. That disposed of the resemblance, thought Lydia. And yet, she could remember his voice, she thought. And when they alighted on the promenade des Anglais, she spoke to him. He replied in French, and it is impossible to detect points of resemblance in a voice that speaks one language, and the same voice when it speaks another. The promenade was crowded with saunterers. A band was playing by the jetty, and although the wind was colder than it had been at Cap Martin, the sun was warm enough to necessitate the opening of a parasol. It was a race week, and the two girls lunched at the Negrito. They were in the midst of their meal when a man came toward them, and Lydia recognized Mr. Marcus Stepney. This dark, suave man was no favorite of hers, though why she could not have explained. His manners were always perfect, and towards her, deferential. As usual, he was dressed with the precision of a fashion plate. 
Mr. Marcus Stepney was a man, a considerable portion of whose time was taken up every morning by the choice of cravats and socks and shirts. Though Lydia did not know this, his smartness, plus a certain dexterity with cards, was his stock in trade. No breath of scandal had touched him. He moved in a good set, and was always at the right place at the proper season. When Aches was full, he was certain to be found at the palace. In the Deauville week, you would find him at the casino, punting mildly at the Baccarat table. And after the rooms were closed, and even the sports club at Monte Carlo had shut its doors, there was always a little game to be had in the hotels and in Marcus Stepney's private sitting room. And it cannot be denied that Mr. Stepney was lucky. He won sufficient at these out-of-hour games to support him nobly through the trials and vicissitudes which the public tables inflict upon their votaries. "'Going to the races,' he said. "'How very fortunate. Will you come along with me? I can give you three good winners.' "'I have no money to gamble,' said Jean. "'I am a poor woman. Lydia, who is rolling in wealth, can afford to take your tips, Marcus.' Marcus looked at Lydia with a speculative eye. "'If you haven't any money with you, don't worry. I have plenty, and you can pay me afterwards. I could make you a million francs today.' "'Thank you,' said Jean coolly. "'But Mrs. Meredith does not bet so heavily.' Her tone was a clear intimation to the man of wits that he was impinging upon somebody else's preserves, and he grinned amiably. Nevertheless, it was a profitable afternoon for Lydia. She came back to Cat Martine twenty thousand francs richer than she had been when she started off. Lydia's had a lot of luck, she tells me, said Mr. Briggerland. Yes, she won about five hundred pounds, said his daughter. Marcus was laying ground bait. She did not know what horses he had backed until after the race was run, when he invariably appeared with a few milly notes and Lydia's pleasure was pathetic. Of course she didn't win anything. The 20,000 francs was a sprat. He's coming tonight to see how the whales are blowing. Mr. Marcus Stepney arrived punctually, and, to Mr. Briggerland's disgust, was dressed for dinner, a fact which necessitated the older man's hurried retreat and reappearance in conventional evening wear. Marcus Stepney's behavior at dinner was faultless. He devoted himself, in the main, to Mrs. Cole Mortimer and Jean, who apparently never looked at him, and yet observed his every movement, knew that he was merely waiting his opportunity. It came when the dinner was over, and the party adjourned to the big stoop facing the sea. The night was chilly, and Mr. Stepney found wraps and furs for the ladies, and so maneuvered the arrangement of the chairs that Lydia and he were detached from the remainder of the party, not by any great distance, but sufficient, as the experienced Marcus knew, to remove a murmured conversation from the sharpest eavesdropper. Jean, who was carrying on a three-cornered conversation with her father and Mrs. Cole Mortimer, did not stir, until she saw, by the light of a shaded lamp in the roof, the dark head of Mr. Marcus Stepney droop more confidently towards his companion. Then she rose and strolled across. Marcus did not curse her, because he did not express his inmost thoughts aloud. He gave her his chair and pulled another forward. "'Does Miss Briggerland know?' 
asked Lydia. No, said Mr. Stepney pleasantly. May I tell her? Of course. Mr. Stepney has been telling me about a wonderful racing coupe to be made tomorrow. Isn't it rather thrilling, Jean? He says it will be quite possible for me to make five million francs without any risk at all. Except the risk of a million, I suppose, smiled Jean. Well, are you going to do it? Lydia shook her head. I haven't a million francs in France, for one thing, she said. And I wouldn't risk it if I had. And Jean smiled again at the discomfiture which Mr. Marcus Stepney strove manfully to hide. Later, she took his arm and led him into the garden. Marcus, she said when they were out of range of the house, I think you are several kinds of a fool. Why? asked the other, who was not in the best humor. It was so crude, she said scornfully, so cheap in confidence, trickish, a miserable million francs, twenty thousand pounds, apart from the fact that your name would be mud in London if it were known that you had robbed a girl. There's no question of robbery, he said hotly. I tell you, Valdo is a certainty for the prix. It would not be a certainty if her money were on said Jean dryly. It would finish an artistic second, and you would be full of apologies, and poor Lydia would be a million francs to the bad. No, Marcus, that is cheap. I nearly broke, he said shortly. He made no disguise of his profession, nor of his nefarious plan. Between the two, there was a queer kind of camaraderie. Though he may not have been privy to the more tremendous of her crimes, Yet he seemed to accept her as one of those who lived on the frontiers of illegality. I was thinking about you as you sat there telling her the story, said Jean thoughtfully. Marcus, why don't you marry her? He stopped in his stride and looked down at the girl. Marry her? Jean, are you mad? She wouldn't marry me. Why not? she asked. Of course she'd marry you, you silly fool, if you went the right way about it. He was silent. She is worth six hundred thousand pounds, and I happen to know that she has nearly two hundred thousand pounds in cash on deposit at the bank, said Jean. Why do you want me to marry her? he asked significantly. Is there a rake-off for you? A big rake-off, she said. The two hundred thousand on deposit should be easily get addable, Marcus, and she'd even give you more. Why? he asked. To agree to a separation, she said coolly. I know you. No woman could live very long with you and preserve her reason. He chuckled. <laughs> and I'm to hand it all over to you? Oh, no, she corrected. I'm not greedy. It is my experience that the greedy people get into bad trouble. The man or woman who wants it all usually gets the dressing case the all was kept in. No, I'd like to take a half. He sat down on a garden seat, and she followed his example. What is there to be? he asked. An agreement between you and me? Something signed and sealed and delivered, eh? Her sad eyes caught his and held them. 
I trust you, Marcus, she said softly. If I help you in this, and I will if you will do all that I tell you to do, I will trust you to give me my share. Mr. Marcus Stepney fingered his collar a little importantly. <clears throat> I've uh, never let a pal down in my life, he said with a cough. I'm as straight as they make them to the people who play the game with me. And you are so wise, so far as I'm concerned, said the gentle Jean. For if you double-crossed me, I should hand the police the name and address of your other wife, who is still living. His jaw dropped. What? he stammered. Let us join the ladies, mocked Jean as she rose and put her arm in his. It pleased her immensely to feel this big man trembling. End of chapter 20